hiatus last week. And we return to the opening verses of chapter 9. I'm going to read here in a moment uh, through the beginning of verse 19. There's the, the section really breaks halfway through the verse, and we're going to stop right there after just the first part of verse 19. And just to remind you again of the context of this passage, we've heard of thousands and thousands of conversions already in the book of Acts. But beginning in Acts chapter 8, God's word zeroes in upon three individuals and their conversions. The first was Simon the Magician and his supposed conversion. We considered that maybe three weeks ago. And then two weeks ago, we considered that glorious passage, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And this morning, God's word turns our attention now to the conversion of Saul. Here we have these three individual pictures of what it looks like when God's people come into uh, a relationship with God, particularly with the Ethiopian eunuch and here now Saul. And what we read here is utterly astounding. Many of us are familiar with the story of Saul's conversion, and because of our familiarity with it, we contend to look, to overlook it, to not really appreciate what's going on here. But as you see there in the title, I've entitled this sermon, Even His Enemies, because that is really what goes on here. God comes, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to Saul, one of his enemies, to powerfully save him. And we're going to rejoice together this morning in the glorious grace of King Jesus. Well, let's give our careful attention now to God's word. This is Acts chapter 9. Beginning at verse 1, reading through the first part of verse 19. This is the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of, synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, two weeks ago, we considered that wonderful story about the Ethiopian eunuch, and that powerful story taught us that God saves outsiders. What a glorious Wonderful truth. God saves outsiders. That man had run hard after everything that this world has to offer, only to find it to be empty. And so he continued seeking for something, but his aim always eluded him. His aim always eluded him, that is, until God's eternal plan had caught up with him and overcome him. So even though this eunuch was without hope and without God in this world, everything changed on that day when, according to God's plan, Philip introduced the Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. Suddenly, that nameless man found everything in Christ. Before, it had seemed as though his sin, his guilt, and his shame would always weigh heavily upon him. But then, through the providence of God, he was reading the scroll of Isaiah And he heard of this one who was pierced for our transgressions. He had heard of this one who was crushed for our iniquities. Even though it had seemed that this man had ruined his own life, he had no name, he had no home, he had no hope of ever having a family. But then suddenly he heard these promises that in this other one, in this man, he could have a family. He could have fruitfulness. He could have an everlasting name that cannot be cut off. And so suddenly, reading God's word, this man's heart heard of all that he had longed for. And so he asked, who is this man? Who would do these things? Who would willingly offer his life for the sake of others? Who is this one who would willingly be wounded so that we might be healed? Who is this one who would be willingly cut off so that we might be reconciled? Who would do these things? Well, when Philip answered these questions with the name of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in that moment, that outsider was powerfully saved. Well, following that wonderful text is now the one before us today. And it follows with a very similar theme. Not only does God save outsiders, but he saves even his enemies. Just look at this man named Saul. We were introduced to him back in chapter 7. And at that time, he was watching the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. And then in chapter 8, it opened by telling us of how Saul gave his eager approval to Stephen's stoning And then that gave way to Saul actually ravaging the church. In chapter 8, he is described as going from house to house, ruthlessly dragging away both men and women to prison. Here in our text, Saul is described as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. He went to the high priest seeking that he might go far from Jerusalem, finding any who were loyal to Jesus. Jesus. 
And in Acts chapter 26, Saul himself reports that he not only locked up many Christians, but he actually cast his vote that they might die. So we see this man, Saul, vehemently opposed to the church. He was arresting as many as he could, and he was pursuing that persecution even to the point of death. He was an ardent enemy of the church. He was an ardent enemy of Christ. And yet, as we see here, God not only saves outsiders, God saves even his enemies. This text beautifully sets Jesus before us. The last time we saw any personal interactions of Jesus was back in chapter 1 with his ascension. Now we have been seeing the way in which Jesus has been working by way of his spirit and through his church since that point. But suddenly here in chapter 9, Jesus appears. And so we're going to look upon Jesus by faith and in his word this morning. So let's begin by considering Jesus and his church. Jesus and his church. Again, our text begins by telling us of how Saul persecuted the church. He was breathing these threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was seeking permission to go as far as Damascus to bring back any who were loyal to Jesus. Well, as Saul was then on his way to persecute the church, suddenly a light from heaven shines all around him, and suddenly he hears a voice. And it asks, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is stopped in his tracks. He cannot see because of this blinding light. And he asks, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Did you catch what Jesus said? Did you catch how he said it? Saul is ravaging the church, and Jesus' question for Saul is, why are you persecuting me? Jesus does not ask Saul, why are you persecuting my bride? Or why are you persecuting the church? Or why are you persecuting the temple of the living God? There are so many other biblical analogies, biblical phrases, words that God, that Jesus could have used in that question. Instead, Jesus simply asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that is very significant. What is Jesus saying about his relationship now with his people? Well, Jesus is saying that so close is his relationship with his own That however you treat the church is how you treat Jesus. How you are oriented to the church is how you are oriented to Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus taught this truth to his disciples? In Matthew 25, Jesus told them about the final judgment, and he said, On that day he is going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he's going to then say to his people, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What glorious words. But Jesus there goes on to say, For I was hungry, and you gave me something eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
then the righteous, God's people, are going to answer Jesus on that day and say, when? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? When did we do this? We didn't see you. But the king will answer them on that day saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See how closely Jesus associates with you, his church. However you are treated, Christ is right there with you, experiencing it. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? Have you yet comprehended the nature, the closeness, the proximity of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes, he is in heaven. Yes, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is so near to you that whatever you experience, he is experiencing it right alongside you. Have you laid hold of the fact that when you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, whatever you experience, he experiences? That is what Jesus is saying here. Think about those whom Saul dragged off to prison. Think about those whom Saul voted to have them put to death. Imagine those dear saints struggling with fear and struggling with the temptation to believe that somehow Jesus had forgotten about them. That maybe Jesus had abandoned them. After all, that is the way things seem. And no doubt the tempter came and said, he has forgotten about you. But Jesus here says, no. Whatever Saul did to the church, Jesus actually experienced it himself. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was with his saints in everything that they experienced. He was right there with them, right alongside them. So brothers and sisters, think about this glorious truth. You were once God's enemies and see how closely now Jesus associates with you. Again, in the scriptures, we are given different analogies for the church. We are a temple. We are a bride. We are a family. But perhaps the best metaphor in in this instance is that of a body. Boys and girls, this is helpful for you to think about. Think about your own physical compensation. When you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, when you trust in him, you become a part of his body and he is the head. He is the head. We are the body. Think about your own body, your own composition. You can distinguish your own head from your body, but you cannot separate them. They always go together. And so if one part of you incurs an injury, all of you feels it. You can't have something horrible happen to your hand without the whole of you experiencing it with that part of your body. Well, here, that is what Jesus is teaching us. This is how it is for you and your Savior. Whatever you experience, he is experiencing it with you. And here, Jesus wants us to see just how much he loves his church. 
He loves you, his church, even as his own body. Just as your hand cannot experience pain without it impacting all of you, so too a single saint cannot suffer without Jesus suffering right alongside. There are other implications of this wonderful reality. And we need to see here in the text how Jesus uses this wonderful reality to reorient Saul to the way that things really are. Saul could not see how his attack upon the church was actually an attack upon Jesus. Jesus is united to his people like your body is united to to your head. Jesus so identifies with you as his people that while he can be distinguished from you, he cannot ever be separated from you. Not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this reality should encourage you today. Here Jesus says that he experienced Saul's attack upon the church as if in himself. Life in the church in a fallen world can be challenging. And it can be incredibly difficult. And we might be tempted to give off of the ways in which we love and we serve the church. Well, Jesus here says that whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So you should take courage. You should be encouraged to love the body of Christ by loving Christ. Whatever you have done for your brothers and sisters in the Lord, you have done it to Christ himself. I don't know if there's anything more encouraging in terms of your service to the Lord in his church. Jesus receives however you serve in the church. So if you have helped your brothers or sisters in some way, you have helped Jesus. If you have encouraged your brothers and sisters in some way, you have encouraged Jesus. If you have served your brothers and sisters in some way, you have served Jesus. If, however you have loved your brothers and sisters in the church, you have loved Jesus. Again, life in the church comes with challenges and trials, and you might be tempted to give off of your service to Christ because of those trials and troubles. Well, Jesus says, look upon me. Do you love me? Here, Jesus is saying that none of your service to Christ has ever escaped his notice. He sees your service. And we need to be reminded that the way in which we demonstrate our love for Christ is actually by loving his church. This is what John taught in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4. There John writes, we love because he first loved us. The only reason any of us ever have love for another is because of God's love, which has been abundantly shed abroad in our hearts. Then John goes on and he writes, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The way in which we demonstrate our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is by loving each other. That is the glorious truth of this text. This is Jesus and his church. Jesus reoriented Saul with this question that put things plainly. Saul, the way that you treat the church 
Is the way that you are oriented to me. So seeing this reality here from Christ, we need to ask, how am I oriented to Christ? And here God's word gives us a lens to answer that question. You need to answer another. How am I oriented to the church? Anytime you are tempted to forego service to a brother or sister or love to a brother or sister, you need to remember and reflect, this is about Jesus. This is not about you. This is not about them. This is about Christ. And if you want to know how you are oriented to Christ, simply look at how you are oriented at his church. So consider today how Christ is calling you to show your love in tangible ways by loving and serving his church. Well, second, we need to go on to consider Jesus and his grace. What would you do if someone was trying to harm you? Quite obviously, I think the natural reaction for any of us would, to do, would be to do whatever we might to protect ourselves. That would be the natural response, right? Someone's trying to harm you. You're going to do whatever you can to remove that threat. Well, given that natural response, we need to consider how Jesus responds to Saul, who is a threat, who is trying to harm him. First of all, we need to begin by seeing Saul's persistent persecution. Ever since we were introduced to this man named Saul, this Saul of Tarsus, he has been involved in persecuting the church. It began with Stephen, and then it gave way to an entire avalanche of persecution as Saul sought out every opportunity to do his worst to both men and women. Saul was so determined that he was not just content to persecute believers in Jerusalem. No, he had to get permission to go out of his way to find any who might be faithful to Jesus. Well, as we have already considered, these attacks were not simply attacks related to Jesus. Instead, since these were attacks upon the church, these were attacks upon Christ. And so again, what would you do? What would we expect one to do if they were being harmed by another? What would we expect the response to be towards someone who has ill intent? I think naturally we'd say, well, we might expect revenge, retaliation, judgment, or vengeance. Well, that is why what we see here in Acts chapter 9 is so completely stunning. Because instead of any of these things that we might innately expect, we see instead the glorious nature of God's grace. And it is astounding This grace is so shocking that it can only be characterized as actually or literally shocking. Have you ever seen somebody in shock? Have you ever seen someone so surprised or overcome with an event or some news that they literally freeze? They're in shock. They cannot take it all in. They cannot process it all. And so their body stops working the way it normally do, does. That's, that's what it means to be in shock. Well, that is actually the nature of God's grace. And I believe that if we could only comprehend, if we could truly comprehend God's grace, we would all freeze in shock. 
That's why we need to be glorified, in fact, to see Christ face to face. So what happens here in Acts chapter 9 when Saul is suddenly saved? Well, I want to be careful here, and I want to be sensitive. But two weeks ago, we were all shocked by the events that happened at a Christian school in Nashville. Most of you, if not all of you, understand what I'm talking about. And to be clear, what took place at that school was truly evil. Lives were lost. Hearts and homes were shattered. But consider the fact that what was carried out there in Nashville is actually very similar to what Saul has been doing here in Acts chapter 8 and 9. Seeing that assailant, we can see Saul. Saul aimed his anger and rage at the church, just as that shooter aimed her anger and rage at the church. Saul here aims his anger and rage at Christ, just as that young woman aimed her anger and rage at Christ. So, what would we think? If Jesus appeared, assuming she was still alive, appeared to her suddenly to graciously save her from her sins. Is there anything in any of us that would draw back from that display of God's glorious grace? Is there anything in us that would say, yeah, but what about justice? Or no, not her, someone else. Well, thinking upon Saul's conversion using that recent event actually helps us to come closer to comprehending the glorious grace of Jesus. Because Saul was just as opposed to Christ and his church as was that young woman. And yet from all eternity, Saul was to be saved. Why? Because of God's sovereign, electing, and glorious grace. So notice these three things about God's glorious grace. First of all, notice that it is personal. It is personal. When Jesus appeared to Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus knew Saul by name. Jesus, in fact, knew Saul better than Saul knew Saul. There wasn't anything about Saul that Jesus did not already know. He knew the depths of his sin. He knew the darkness of his own heart. And yet here he sets his personal grace upon Saul. Second, notice that this that God's glorious grace is also planned. This is not happenstance. Jesus didn't happen to bump into Saul on the road to Damascus. No, you see all of the different ways in which Jesus actually uh, plans and carries out his plan. First, he appears to Saul. He blinds Saul. He sends Saul. And then he calls Ananias and he tells him which house to go to and what he's supposed to do there. All of this, every last detail, is carefully planned by Jesus. And so third, we need to note that God's glorious grace is powerful. Look at the circumstances of our text. At this point in time, when Jesus appears to Saul, he has already lived, suffered, 
died, was buried, and rose again for the sake of this man named Saul. He has already accomplished Saul's salvation, and so he now just powerfully appears to him to apply it. It's already been purchased, and so now Jesus comes in power to completely save this sinner. And so we see here how Jesus comes to apply his glorious grace, and it is both personal, planned, and powerful. Again, this reality should encourage you today. Even though there are uniquenesses to Saul's conversion, it's not like everyone else's. There are still very significant ways in which it is the same. I want you to think about this today. If you know Christ, if you have experienced his glorious grace, you have experienced that personal, planned, and powerful grace of God. You are not trusting in Christ because of anything in you. You are trusting in Christ because of Christ's grace, his personal love for you, his planned love for you, his powerful love for you. The reason why you can rejoice in Christ is because of Christ. My two youngest brothers are adopted. And I love reflecting on the day in which they became a part of our family. We all went to the courthouse to see and to celebrate with them this wonderful change in relationship. Now imagine my brothers on that day looking at my family and asking the question, why do you love us? Imagine how disappointing it would be if the answer was, because we love everyone. What do you mean? Well, that was not our answer. It would not have been our answer. No, if they had asked the question, why do you love us? Our answer would have been personal. It would have been planned and it would have been powerful. Each of us could speak of the ways in which we each loved these two boys personally. We didn't love everybody. We loved them. Each of us could speak to the fact that as a family, we had planned this adoption. We sat down together and said, yes. Let's make them a part of our family. And then each of us could speak to the power of their adoption. They were legally taken from one part of, or they didn't have a family. They were made a part of our family. Well, this is what happens when you experience the grace and mercy of Jesus. You experience his love personally. He didn't love everybody. He loved you. He didn't create a plan of salvation that made it possible for everyone to come, anyone that might. No, he planned to save you. And because of that plan, he has powerfully brought it and applied it to your heart. Brothers and sisters, what we see here in Saul's conversion is is true for each of you who are now trusting in Christ. And you need to know that Jesus did this for you because of the joy set before him. He was willing to take on flesh and to suffer and to die in your place because he so loved you that he wanted you with him in heaven. This is the grace of King Jesus. And you need to be encouraged no matter your circumstances in life today because of the glorious grace of God. Well, third and finally, we need to see Jesus and his plan. 
Jesus and his plan. Saul's conversion came with great clarity regarding God's call for his life. When Jesus appeared to Saul, he first blinded him and then sent him to Damascus so that he might be ministered to, get this, by the very same people he was about to persecute. They were called to go and love him. And so Saul was led by the hand into the city. For three days he sat there in darkness. And as our text tells us, Jesus in a vision comes and says, Ananias. And Ananias is receptive to the Lord's will and and wants to know what the Lord wants him to do. And so in that vision, Jesus says, go to this certain street, go to this certain home. There you're going to find this man named Saul praying. You need to lay your hands on him. You need to pray for him so that he can regain his sight. Ananias has heard the name of Saul. And so he is not sure about this plan. You want me to go to the one who's here to kill everybody? Well, Jesus reassured Ananias with his words, and we need to take a closer look at what Jesus said to Ananias. Jesus said to him, go, for he, speaking of Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, Saul's conversion came with incredible clarity regarding God's plan for his life. What was Christ's plan? What was Christ's perfect plan for Saul? Well, Jesus says two things concerning Saul's life and Christ's plan for his life. Jesus says, first, I am calling you into my service. And then he says, second, I am preparing you to suffer. Those are the two parts of Christ's perfect plan for Saul. We need to think about this in two ways. First of all, we need to think about the wisdom of God. Here was this enemy of Christ whom Jesus suddenly saved. And not only that, Jesus has now drafted Saul into his service. This persecutor of the church is now going to be Christ's mouthpiece of the grace of God to this world. Why has he done it this way? Well, Saul actually tells us later in his uh, his first letter to Timothy. There he wrote, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The reason why Saul was so powerfully saved is so that you might never ever doubt believing that your sin is somehow greater than God's grace No, Saul was this persecutor, this blasphemer, this insolent opponent, and yet God came to him. Christ came to him to save Saul. In Christ's perfect plan, Saul is now saved to be a monument to the grace and mercy of Jesus. If you, as you struggle with sin, begin to doubt God's love for you and the power of his grace, you need to simply look at Saul, the persecutor of the church, 
Because Jesus saved Saul so that you might not ever doubt the love and the grace of Jesus. God's grace is always greater than your sin. So no matter your present struggle, you can rest in the mercy and grace of Jesus. Well, not only would Saul be this servant now of Jesus... But Jesus also said to him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And we need to understand that this is not revenge. This is not retribution. This suffering is not a response to Saul's persecution of this church. Instead, Jesus is simply preparing Saul for what comes alongside the service of King Jesus. This is is what Jesus is saying to Saul. In my service, you will also suffer. And this is a, a, a difficult reality for us to sometimes wrap our minds around as believers. You see, Jesus' perfect plan includes both service and suffering. We we considered this last week with Psalm 126, sowing with tears which then will gloriously give way to shouts of joy. How do we then embrace Christ's perfect plan? Well, I want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes. Think about Saul in this set of circumstances. Only days earlier, he was living out his dream. He had everything that he wanted and had worked for. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and there were all sorts of rewards, if you will, that came with that way of life. Saul was honored among his peers. He was well provided for, and he knew that his future was essentially secure. He had what so many people work hard to achieve in this life. In many ways, Saul had it all. He was living out his dream. Then suddenly Christ comes to him and all of that's gone. All of it has disappeared in a moment. How do you think Saul reacted to Christ's perfect plan? Again, in just a few days, his entire world was turned upside down. Here he learns that Jesus' plan is for him to serve and to suffer. What do you think he made of that sudden change? He must have loved his previous life and his own personal plans in it. So what did he make of being drafted into Christ's service and being told, guess what, you're going to suffer? Well, look at our text. Remarkably, there is no hesitation on Saul's part. Instead, Saul seems actually eager to leave behind his own personal plans in favor of Christ's perfect plan. He is willing to let go of all that he had before for whatever it is that Christ has for him. How in the world does that happen? What causes a person to let go of their life in this world in order to embrace Christ's plan for their life? Well, here in our text, we can identify at least two answers to these questions. First of all, Saul sees and he savors the glorious grace of Jesus. Think about what has just transpired in Saul's life. He now sees and understands himself to be the chief of sinners. 
Earlier, Saul would have said, I have a wonderful righteousness that commends me to God. But in his grace and in his mercy, Jesus appeared to Saul to reveal to him the way that things really were. Saul, you are the chief of sinners. And so now Saul understands that he deserved nothing but the wrath and fury of God in hell forever. Saul actually sees clearly standing before Jesus that if he were to stand in his own righteousness, that he deserved that eternity of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And standing there, Saul sees that this life is not what he made it to be. But then standing there before the risen Christ, Saul can now see that Jesus has taken Saul's sin upon himself. That for no reason that Saul can find in himself, from all eternity, Jesus determined to come and to stand in Saul's place to take his sins upon him and to die upon the cross for Saul. And so now seeing the risen Christ, everything has changed because he sees and he savors the glorious grace of God. But then second, Saul also now knows Jesus personally. He has heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He he is actually intentionally persecuting anyone who will follow this man. But suddenly he knows Jesus. Before he knew of Jesus, now he actually knows Jesus personally. Saul has a personal relationship with Jesus. And get this, that relationship is worth more to him than anything else. His relationship with the risen Christ far outweighs everything that this world has to offer. Saul can suddenly leave behind everything that he has worked for. He can let go of his personal plans for his own life in this world. And he can do so without dragging his feet. He doesn't do this begrudgingly. Why? Because Christ is worth everything. And why is it that Saul sees that Christ is worth everything? Well, he actually tells us himself in Galatians 2. Here is what Saul sees. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, that is the key to embracing and actually loving Christ's perfect plan for your life. Something must be powerful enough to leave off all that this world has to offer in order to embrace Christ's plan of service alongside of suffering. What could be worth it? Well, Christ is worth it. Because we have been loved much, we can love much. Saul eagerly exchanged his personal plans for Jesus' perfect plan because of that glorious grace of Jesus and because of his personal relationship with Christ. So brothers and sisters, I hope that you can see here in Acts chapter 9, I hope that you can see and appreciate the personal nature of God's love for you. Here in our text, we see how Jesus orchestrated all of these events to save even his enemy. You were once God's enemies. 
But God, being rich in mercy, he has set his saving love upon you as you trust in Christ. Remember Romans 8.10. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were once like Saul. Standing before Christ, destined for hell. But Christ came in his grace and mercy to set his love upon us and to save us. And suddenly he becomes worth everything. Joel Beakey recently put it really well, saying, Jesus laid down his life willingly so that you will lay down yours thankfully. So consider Christ Jesus today. Consider how closely he identifies with you. Consider how closely he identifies with you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You won't be the first. And whatever it is that Christ has you walk through, he is walking through it with you. Consider how he is graciously oriented toward you. You are sitting here today because of Christ's personal, planned, and powerful working in your life. Consider Christ's eternal love for you. And finally, consider how his present plan for your life is actually perfect. There's so many things that we look at upon our lives and wish it were different. But remember, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and his thoughts above our ways and his thoughts. And so we can hide ourselves in God knowing that how he is orchestrating our lives today is his perfect plan. So believe this and trust that he is ordering all of these things for your salvation, to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful text that shows us how closely you identify with us. Lord, we struggle sometimes to believe what you said so clearly here in your word. And so we pray that you would increase our faith. You would cause us to remember and to appreciate that you are always with us, that you will never leave nor forsake us, that you actually experience with us whatever we walk through. And Lord, we pray that you would help us today to comprehend your glorious grace. Lord, we were truly once your enemies. Had you left us to ourselves, our hearts would have never been inclined toward you. And just as you did here for Saul, you have done for each of your own coming by way of your word and spirit to powerfully transform hearts and lives. And so we thank you for this grace. Lord, we pray that you would cause us 
to hide ourselves in your glorious grace. Lord, for any who are struggling with sin and struggling to doubt your goodness and your grace, Lord, we pray that they might see and savor today your grace as you made Saul a monument to your grace. Lord, help us to believe and to come to you confessing sin and trusting in Christ. And Lord, we also pray that you would help us to embrace your plan for our lives in this world. Your word is so clear about what we are to expect in this life. And yet we know that our flesh does not often desire it. And yet we ask that you would increase our faith, that you would strengthen us to believe in your perfect plan, to leave off of our own logic, and instead believe what your word says, trusting that you, according to your promise, are working together all things for our good. Strengthen us as we believe to the praise and glory of your name. Amen.